0: Welcome to the Evolution Exchange UK podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they are facing. I'm Scott Hutchinson from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and I help businesses connect with top.net talent. And today I'm your host. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel to talk about taking a product from conception to delivery. I'm joined by Paul Michaels from Music Magpie, Chris Diver. From Scan Computers and Alexa Vukatic from the Startup factory.tech. Before we get into the discussion, let's make some introductions. So yeah, Paul, if we can start with your introduction. Yeah, so I'm uh,
1: I'm Paul Michaels. I'm uh, head of development for a company called Music Magpie. Um, so we uh, we kind of buy and sell various items, so phones, CDs, um, DVDs. Um, it's quite a long list of, of things that we we sort of trade in i look after the um mainly the back end of the of the system and um, so things around like the pricing products and uh, so on and so forth and um, our tech stack is predominantly microsoft and um, and i'm also a microsoft mvp but i reckon if you if you cut me open it'd probably be like a microsoft logo right in the middle <laughs>
2: And Chris? Hi, so I'm Chris Diver. Uh, my title is Director of IT, and I'm responsible for overseeing the software development, data, IT infrastructure, and InfoSec teams at Scan.co.uk. Um, Scan, were better known as a PC components retailer um, with a focus on building gaming machines. Um, but we also sell professional audio equipment, professional video, um, and we're also an NVIDIA Elite partner, um, deploying AI and deep learning solutions using NVIDIA GPUs. Um, my background is software developer, um, also Microsoft. So, I like to say that I'm a soft, I'm like the only software guy in a hardware company, really.
0: And finally, I th-
1: Alexa. Sorry, Paul, go ahead. Because I bought my first computer from Scan back in the mid to late 90s
2: brilliant
1: uh, 486 <laughs> dx266 it was at the time
2: yeah that's so a bit before my time not much but just a
0: little bit <laughs> <laughs> we probably got some still knocking around on the shelf somewhere i think i got my first asus computer from you as well brilliant <laughs> i
2: never tire hearing that sort of stuff to be honest
3: and <laughs> finally alexa Hi, everyone. My name is Alexa. I'm a CTO at a company called The Startup Factory.Tech. Uh, our tagline is we build tech companies. So we work with early stage founders to uh, build and launch new products to the market, new tech products to the market. So it's MVP, it's uh, you know lean uh, development, quick to the market, uh, hopefully not sacrificing too much of the quality along the way. Um, As part of my role, I I usually stay on as a fractional CTO with a number of startups we work with. So that is a big, big part of the role, uh, you know, growing teams and, and, you know, fledging new companies and new teams out of those. Um, And finally, I do run a a pragmatic CTO community event here in Manchester as well. Thank you. Great. So let's move on to the topic You'll all have a question or statement on
0: taking a product from conception to delivery, asking each of you to pose a question and, and your reason behind it. And each of you'll have the opportunity to, to give your take on it. So let's start with Paul and your question how to identify and manage the risk associated with deployment of new software and whether that can be a replacement for an existing product or greenfield project.
2: Chris? So I was struggling to get myself off mute there. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. Um, I think in terms of identifying risk, um, it's really important that you look at it early. Um, maybe that's part of upfront planning, identifying the risks there, or getting feedback as part of daily stand ups. Um, you want to identify risk early so you can mitigate against it. Uh, another good way we do it is um, deploying often and getting feedback early. So you're not looking at deploying um, large updates where the risk is greater. Uh, another thing I think I'd say is that sometimes you just accept the risk. I think it really does depend on the project and the scenario and the number of people it'll impact. So if there's low impact, only a few people working on that process or system, we might just accept it rather than try and spend a lot of time mitigating that risk. Um, having a – the things that – risk is going to happen anyway. Having a great rollback strategy for me as well, um, making sure that you've got the ability to roll back at it hopefully that button's press having good continuous delivery pipelines. Um, so that if you if there are risks you haven't identified and it does go wrong, you, you, you can roll back pretty well, pretty easily. Um, and the other thing as well to mitigate risk, I think having great visibility into performance of systems, um, whether it's kind of logging dashboards, um, just if when things go wrong, being able to dig in and actually find out why it was. And I was kind of talking about why how it can be completely different. Sometimes we we deploy internal systems where they're only used by a couple of people. So we'll just accept that risk and go with it and roll back if necessary. But oh, there was a period during um, during COVID when we were selling NVIDIA founders GPUs, and these were like hotcakes at the time. Um, and anytime we'd release them, we'd have one of a million people trying to hit the site. So, the risks in deploying a change at that point in time were huge, really. So we had to optimise the website for that kind of level of traffic. And we were constantly evolving the systems to combat against bots and scalpers. Um, and one of the big risks there was that any small change with that many people could have a huge impact. So we, every, we were mitigating that risk really by stress testing and spike testing and low testing all the time for every release. So I think it's very situational. You've got to weigh it all up. I think that's kind of a thought. Sorry, really.
0: How about
3: you, Alexa? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what Chris has said there. I think, you know, uh, I think you mentioned CI. I think automation and consistent and repeatable process is, is for me the key to, to kind of mitigate any risk. Uh, you know, no surprises, really, or principally least surprise. Uh, we, we do we work with, with startups, uh, and you know, start that might be a kind of environment. You expect a lot of kind, you know, let's hack things together and push it through. But the first things we always do is is a, is a proper CI, including including the deployment and including migrations. Because I think when it comes to you know pushing a piece of code or just changing functionality, uh, there is a challenge, and you have to manage it. But especially if it changes the data, because then the rollback might become much trickier. And just on the point of rollback, I'm not sure if that's because of my last five years in, in, in startup world uh, uh, we for example don't do rollback it's it's always fixed forward it's always push on it's always you know we maybe take a bit more risk than than uh, if we were a bit more established uh, you know product so we want things out we want to try them and test them we want them to fail if they fail at least they will fail fast uh, so we don't spend time on setting up rollbacks because that's a bit of complexity, especially if the data is involved. So it's always, but automation is definitely key. Uh, And then going forward, I think, you know, uh, again, uh, Chris already mentioned observability, being able to see what's happening and being able to react. Uh, but with with the, uh, what we have found at least uh, in in our world is with with the kind of route automation, you know repeatable tooling, you know um, releasing and deploying software is 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 just another thing. Um, you know, it happens many times, many times a day, really. So anytime you need something you do, you you can just just roll it out. but that does require kind of you know careful thinking about, it. especially uh, not only code but migrations and data, which is which is the tricky bit. what What's your approach typically then, Paul? Uh, so I mean a lot a lot
1: of the similar things. Um, I suppose, yeah, I haven't got anything any sort of new um, new insights on that. I, I am the the couple of things that have been said though. Um, so I think Alexa, you said about no rollback. Is that no rollback, or do you use stuff like feature switching and A/B testing to so the you you might not roll back the software but you might roll back the functionality so you know you can just deploy something with a feature switch off and then flip it on and then if if kind of everything goes to a wall you can flip it
3: off again if necessary yeah that's a good question that is used definitely uh uh, you know uh, early on probably not even that it's just go on really all or nothing but yeah feature you know feature flags are, are, are a good tool it kind of you know it's you know, well, yeah, rolled back, but not in, in anything but name. But yeah,
1: yeah. If if you got if you got no website and then you have got a website, it's not a lot of risk to that website that, that didn't previously exist suddenly existed. <laughs> um, the other the other slight comment I had was um, on uh, I think Chris you said about uh, having um, like you know the massive traffic spike. Uh, it's not not much of a comment, but I noticed uh, I think it was the last or the pretty the last but one Grand National. Um, and I was actually out the track at the time trying to put a bet on. And the the bookies that I went on, it just went to a Cloudflare, you know, the Cloudflare queue page. Oh, yeah. And I thought that that was an interesting risk mitigation because obviously they knew they were going to get a spike. But nobody you can't predict the level of, of traffic that goes on that site at that exact time. Um, and it just went to a Cloudflare queue. And I thought that was a really good way of, of mitigating the risk. Because it's like, okay, we've done everything we can. And if that's not enough, then at least we've got something and the entire site do not go down.
2: Yeah, we're big users of Flare ourselves. Um, and I think at the time, a lot of similar organizations, when the, the founders started um, and the 30 Series launched it, I think he took out every website in Europe because the demand was that high. Everyone was at home wanted to game and couldn't go out and so they were spending the money on a new shiny graphics card. And um one of the solutions to that was to a queue it. I think it was very, I think it was before Cloudflare had their queue um, products. I always saw it that it's it's a great thing as a backstop, or the experience of people being in a queue. Um, thinking back to COVID, I think being queue had something very similar, and you had to wait like eight hours to get on the website. So from a user experience perspective, um, I think it can be quite terrible if you rely on it. Which I think some organisations have.
1: Yeah, it's, def- um, it's definitely bad. It's just slightly
2: less bad than the entire site but, going down. <laughs> well, you're right. It, it is. Yeah, it's that absolutely. Is-
0: before before committing anything or, or deploying anything, do you use any tools like SonarCube or, or SonarLint? So we did um we did a bit of research
1: into sort of static and dynamic code analysis, and none of it was really up to scratch like which we, we tried a few we tried Sony, we tried a, a couple of others and there was little bits that you would expect it to to kind of flag up and it just wasn't doing um so we we just ended up relying on pull requests to to sort of spot things which it's not perfect but I mean if you've got a decent set of automated tests and and your, your architectures all right it'll probably do yeah I mean Although same
3: single yeah yeah sorry. go ahead please yeah sorry.
2: I think we went through a very similar journey as well ourselves, looking at those those kind of tools a few years ago. And and yeah, we kind of just put all requests in place in code reviews.
3: Yeah, we use linting a lot, uh, um, you know, as part of CI that catches quite a lot of things. And being careful with, you know, static typing and, you know, you can do quite a lot of things at, at, at compile time nowadays if you do things right, really, which is which is quite good. We don't use Sondra or anything like that. It's it's, it's probably a bit heavy in, in our kind of startup environment. But, yeah, the linting is definitely in there.
0: Thanks, everyone.
3: And if we can move on to Chris's question,
0: how do you ensure that the product design aligns with the user needs and business objectives, Paul? So, um, I mean, my, my first thing on that is um,
1: – you need to get an mvp designed so you need to work out what your your least possible deployable um like sensible piece of the uh, piece of software is and aim for that um and uh, a lot of the, a lot of the things around that you know rapid prototyping and so on um like uh, iter iteration rapid iterations um, and then i suppose the other thing is it depends just I suppose a conversation like this is, is always going to come back to it depends, but it does depend. Cause if you're, um, if you're writing, I don't know, a, like a company like ours, for example, which is predominantly, you know, a, a sort of, we have, and, and presumably yours is yours, Chris as well. Like you've got a website that that people go on it. What, what is an MVP? is kind of whatever you say an MVP is. So, you know, if you've got a functionality that's going out, you, you decide what that, needs to look like and then and then you can aim for that um whereas it'd be different i, I, I don't know about your experience alexa but you know if you if you write in a piece of, i don't know say say you're writing a piece of software for a nuclear reactor or something i'm not, not saying you have done but um if you were an mvp is going to be a really specific thing and and you know what what exactly that has to do is going to be there's going to be some really hard things about like it has to be able with i don't know what nuclear reactors do but you know the cooling tower. I know that's the thing, right? It's the cooling tower's got to work, otherwise we're all in trouble. So that there's no there's no give on that. Whereas depending on your your audience, there might be a bit of give on on some of the other features. And um, so I think I think that um, that matters hugely. And um, and also in terms of like actually getting feedback. Um, one of the things I, I used to work at a, a company that did gambling software um and they used to do like basically user interviews and so on um but i don't know if you've ever seen house where he says everybody lies well that's what we found right so so you ask somebody you know what 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 are your gambling habits or do you do you find this easy to use or, or whatever and a lot of people will lie for various reasons so you know if you say do you find this easy to use they might say yes because they're embarrassed that they can't use it if you say how often a, a day do you gamble they might you know lie about that because they're embarrassed about it or whatever or, or even the opposite and and make out that they, they do more than they, they do and um, so i think that that sort of um that sort of technique has to be i'm not saying it's, it's useless but it's uh, you've got to be careful about it and um, and then I, I suppose the other thing is you need you need to work out what your measurable targets are so um don't confuse what people want and what people need obviously depending on the circumstance again that, uh, that can change but going back to my nuclear reactor thing like there's going to be a set of things that you absolutely have to have for a nuclear reactor and it can't it's not there's no way you can change that but you know if if you were writing a website a brand new website and somebody said oh actually i need a, a, a facility to i don't know for users to log in they might not need that from day one i don't know but um, so yeah, uh, that's that's kind of my take on it. I think.
3: And Alexa. Yeah, it's MVP, MVP, MVP. I like you said that, Paul. I mean, that's kind of I keep saying that a lot uh, when we were with our founders. It is you know building, you know, making sure you build what's important, what's important for your customer, not necessarily for yourself. But it is it is a game of of trade offs really, uh, uh, because it's uh, you know you have to balance. You know, you want to go out and release as soon as you can. You want the best product possible. Uh, And and you want kind of to be as efficient and and cost effective as possible. These things are always a bit tricky to kind of balance. Um, And, you know, you you have to look at it from the perspective of, you know, I've seen some, for example, uh, startups uh, that had, um, you know, very, uh, you know, large architecture, you know, like 10 node Cassandra clusters and, you know, uh, event sourcing and a lot of kind of interesting stuff, um, which... Probably took a lot of time to develop. It cost a lot to run, but I have like a hundred customers. So you have you have to see it from that perspective, you know, because I think, you know, the, that's, that was a good design and a good infrastructure, but what it meant is that startup kind of ran out of money sooner than it should, really. Um, but the other hand, uh, i worked with a fintech startup uh, a few years back and it's um, it's a software that goes into banks and, you know, it's all about the functionality and features because that's important. But for banks, what's important is security, really. So you have to include that in MVP. So that's not, you know, a, a, a nice an add-on. Uh, and when I, I mean security, it can be much tighter than what would be a standard, you know. Uh, off the shelf, something we do for a website, for example, in terms of encryption and segregation and and data centers and whatnot. So I think that that was then, then justified in that case. But it is a constant battle and it is kind of constant. I think communication is key for this, really, just making sure that everybody is on the same page. And I think we have a little little process that our head of engineering kind of developed when we when we work with startup to, to the point of Chris's questions about how we sure we're building the right thing, especially in early stage startups, you never share really. Uh, is this really what we should be building? And you spend a lot of time designing the MVP and kind of figuring out what features goes in. But what we then say is, okay, we're gonna build something to take us, you know, a few weeks, let's say. Let's see we can do everything in half the time. And just push on and and just, you know, maybe some parts will be a bit of a kind of um, not polished, maybe edge cases won't be covered, but half the time we'll have something that can illustrate why we are building this. And we have a moment there to discover, you know, is this it? Shall we just carry on? Do we need to make some tweaks? Which is mostly the case, or is this really maybe not what we really wanted? So let's 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 do it again. So it's kind of a splitting that MVP into half, going one layer deeper. That seems to be working well for us in the last few years. That's an, that's an interesting thing I haven't done before outside of the startup startup world. And what's your take on that, Chris?
2: I think Paul says something that it, it depends, and I think it's very different in different scenarios. Um, ideally, one of the things about success with and it'd be interesting to get a take on it, um, is we're building an internal tool. And we I think firstly you've got a really good understanding of the problem um and make sure that all the stakeholders are aligned to solve that problem. And we had great success. It, w- it was with the finance team. And we put the, the end users with the developers and MVP and we note it out. they get like Alexa saying in half the time. Um, and got them to use it without even, even being in production. And the feedback we got from that helped completely course adjust how that was going to work. Um, and everyone was really engaged and excited to work on that project and it worked really well. So almost then, we've taken that as a blueprint and used it in another scenario. Um, and we've gone and built exactly what has been asked for and got the feedback. It's like, no, everything's great. It's all working. But actually, it's not meeting the business goals and then down the line, weeks down the line, when it's not meeting the business goals, because the software's is wrong. Um, but having done that, we we built exactly what was asked for. Uh, I'm just wondering if anyone has any kind of experience in when that sort of technique works and doesn't work, it's like how that would work. We um, a long time ago, I used to work for a
1: company that um, basically they reset well they did. They- created and, and sold an erp system and and this was back in the days of functional specifications so we would produce a uh, sometimes 100 page functional specification saying this is what software is going to do and we give it to the end user and we say there you go that's what we're going to write and they'd sign it off and then basically we'd deliver the software and they go that's not what we want. And then we go, but that's what's on the functional specification, and say uh, the, the the conversation would basically boil down to, well, you can't expect me to understand what you've written there because I'm not I'm not technically minded, and and that would happen so often, and and you know I was when when sort of um, people started adopting the Agile Manifesto, I was one of the people who who like understood it because like I've lived it so many times of like yeah we've written this, this is what we're gonna do. And then sign it, and it's absolutely pointless. Like literally, the minute you finish writing it, it's absolutely useless. And also, if if there was any changes and you agreed to them, they wouldn't end up back because you're not going to go through that whole process again. And write a whole new functional specification. And say, well, we we said all these buttons were going to be green and now they're blue. Um. So yeah, I mean, I think I think that's it. I think people generally don't know what they want out of software unless unless you're essentially you know, like like you kind of alluded to, Chris. Unless you. Replacing something that's really well understood and, and people have been using it and so on and so forth and, and the business process is all well defined and everything. I think it's really difficult to um, to work out what exactly people want, especially you know if it's a new process or something like that. They'll they'll say, well, we kind of want it to do this or whatever. And then we're, obviously when when you deliver the software, especially if it is what they've asked for, quite often just be like, well, we're not going to use it, but we're not going to keep keep up a fuss because what we asked for. <laughs>
2: That makes a lot of sense. I think as well, um a lot of it kind of comes, I think in our scenario, we'll always come back to kind of the culture and the way the various teams work. And I think in Scan, we're trying to get everyone on the same page in terms of culture. But sometimes as well, I think some of the feedback has been, yeah, it's all great. But actually, they were fearful of actually coming back and saying, no, this isn't what we want. Whereas in my first example, where we were really well, they were like, no, this is wrong. This isn't going to work. Why have we done this? No, that doesn't make any sense. Um. So I think having a culture of being able to voice uh, sort of dissentance and be critical of what's been produced is is absolutely critical in that. Um, and I think having a culture of not failing as well, like not fear of failure, not being fearful to say, "Oh God, we spent two months on this; it's completely wrong. Let's throw it in the bin and, and start again," and actually taking that as a learning and, and a positive thing that we didn't spend two years and have like possibly a solution that which is not going to use. (laughs) Let's just keep quiet about it. Um, I had another question. So all that works really well for me internally, kind of when you can speak to the stakeholders and stuff, but I guess more for Paul because we're talking e-commerce. And you talked also a little bit about how doing user interviews and stuff, like everybody lies. Completely agree with that. I've been there, done that one as well. Um, How do you kind of get that feedback do you kind of employ A/B testing techniques? What sort of stuff do you guys do?
1: Yeah, so uh, I should probably qualify when I say I real I'm just talking about like you know you, you shouldn't accept people's people's feedback as as like gospel. So um, they, quite often people say what they think you want to hear. And we do yeah we do use A/B testing quite quite a lot. So um, certainly for front end changes we do, um, and we're, we're looking at possible ways of doing that on the back end as well um although that's a less sort of well-trodden path in terms of exactly how you do that um but yeah i mean I, I, in in conjunction with things like feature flags and so on and so forth so you know you can you can sort of do a b test by proxy if you like so you, you can sort of say how does this work when it's on how does it work when it's off whatever um so yeah i mean that's that's kind of our our technique
3: yeah and definitely getting metrics out of it as 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 much as you can really anything you know you want to know what's used i always want to know what's used because i i mean it's not a blame game or or or, you know why did we build something but it kind of helps uh future development as well and understanding why we are picking features and how we get into prioritizing them into doing something you know adding something to it so metrics from the get-go as well whatever that is yeah, I think being at a from from front end point
1: of view, being at a user journey is really is really useful because um, I mean even even when I've you know done yeah. um, like in the past done uh, done systems that were less sort of popular and and so on. You know, like I say we used to work in a gambling company and we did a sort of kiosk for them where somebody would, would walk up and start putting bets in and, and trying to work out how they use that and. Um, what it was that you know they were they were clicking on and, and when they were struggling um but what, one of the things i did actually when we did that so me, me dad my dad places bets occasionally so i put it in front of him and i says can you use that and he, he sort of messed about with it for about 10 minutes and in the end he just sort of walked away and he said oh, I'm, I'm i'm not clever enough to use that type of thing it's like nope that's that's nothing to do with you. That's that's like a badly designed interface, if because like you're a prime customer and, and you can't use it type of thing. So, I think if you can get the right person and you can get them to um to give you some feedback, and if that is somebody walking away from it and saying I can't work out how to use it, that's amazing feedback because especially if that's the person you're actually trying to get to use it.
2: I think yeah, with the feedback, I think we we rely quite heavily on trust pilot and we almost we get a lot of good five star reviews and you almost not ignore them but sort of put them to one side and it's, it's those critical ones that you're really looking for the way you can make the gains and improvements and trying to get the perfect score of five every time because and just basically driving that change and giving the customers what they want really interesting uh like i had a question for you because you were talking about the 10 of cassandra cluster when solving startup mentality kind of when do you think it's the right time to introduce some complexity or more complexity
3: I think it has to be driven by customers always. So, you know, I, I would love to have a problem and I can't serve, you know, everything I have. Uh, although in the cl- modern cloud, that's really, you know, the, the limits are quite high. I think there's a lot of tooling nowadays. I mean, maybe that example of Cassandra was a bit, you know, it's probably a few years old, uh, but but nowadays with, with you know, the, Kind of ready-made, you know, container setups already out there. Uh, it, it is fairly easy to scale without having to use anything like Cassandra or, or anything specific, more specific than that. But I think for us, it's, you know, we usually do try to see what's the best case scenario, how many we want to handle, and make sure we never kind of drop below that, really, in terms of the volumes and, and capacity and complexity, really. But then, as soon as the market tells us that uh, the users want more, what is more of the users. Uh, we, would, we would look at it straight away. But the good thing about that in startup world is if, if you can prove that, that you're kind of, if you're, if you're let's say, uh, as an example, your website is crumbling, that's where you can really get investment. And you can get properly, you know, funded for that and do it do it at the right time rather than, you know, doing it in a shoestring budget that you do at the beginning. <laughs> that's a
1: good problem to have in it if you if you build a a website for 10 people and ten thousand people are trying to use it you've got the right problem if you build if you spend all that time building a website for ten thousand, you you've got 10 people using it that's a big that's a
3: harder problem isn't it absolutely
2: yeah going back to the kind of when our website crumbled on the 30 series launch i had a conversation with the ceo actually i remember it pretty well that it's like uh, in my opinion we've got to approaches here like the, these product launches happen every couple of years did you know what? it's only an hour do we actually bother with the investment or do we really go to town and make the website performance so we can scale to this kind of traffic and he didn't even hesitate he was like no we're going to put the investment in and we did and uh and it was worthwhile because it kept happening <laughs> it's having these kind of product releases and stuff on the traffic but it absolutely helped having that problem getting the investment in place
0: how do you encourage uh, a user to kind of elaborate if they say, yeah, it's okay, it's working fine. How, how do you try and pull more information out of them to to help give you that more feedback to improve it?
2: Uh, yeah, that's what I've actually thought about. Um, that's where, where the challenges come from and where the questions come from, really. Uh, I don't think we pushed hard enough. I think, it'll, I think I need to work with some of my team to be able to extract that information. But I think company culture helps with that a lot. I think if you're in a company culture where it's okay to speak out, it's okay to be critical of the process, um, you accept that we don't always get things right, and we always want the new ideas. I think people will be more vocal. But, um, yeah, that's my sort of take on that.
3: Yeah, I think culture is important. I think yeah, is you know, it can't be you know anything else but the kind of you know we all work in the same goal, aren't we? um and in the at least in the startup world i mean the only question is is the customer willing to spend the money that's the feedback really if they're not then there's more to be done <laughs> and since what paul no i think i'd, I'd
1: agree with that i mean you got to be careful the, the thing with these things is always be careful to not shoot messengers. so if you um you know if you if you if people say this isn't working and then you just browbeat them then eventually it'll stop saying it doesn't work. But you've not changed the thing that isn't working. You've just changed the fact that you don't know about it now. So, um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree, with, agree with everything that's been said. You've got to encourage feedback. And and if you don't like it, that's probably better feedback than
0: everybody slapping each other on the back and saying how great everything is. And last but no means least, Alexi, your question. What's your one best of advice for effective prioritisation? Chris? Yeah, um i think
2: my one best advice is and it's going back to some of the, te- the themes that really involve everyone um in the past have kind of prioritized based on what i think the needs are and actually really involve the key stakeholders in that decision um and take them on the journey with you I and mean, that's my w- one bit of thing for prioritization and
1: Bob? yes yeah, so mine for mine i'm, I'm gonna steal um something from i don't know if anybody's read the phoenix project yes so uh if if you haven't then then it's definitely worth reading it's like one of the few it books that like actually is readable like from cover to cover like not as a reference book um and in that one of the things that they say is that you should prioritize uh, improvement of work over work itself and i think that is uh, I've, i've seen lots of situations where that helps so you know if if you can write a really good um like unit test or automation test or, or whatever it is that, that's gonna save you having to test that piece of software over and over and over again that's far more useful than, than you know spending spending that time writing hey another feature um so that that would be my my one thing but I would also encourage everyone to read the Phoenix project and to a lesser degree the unicorn
3: project which is like a weird sequel. I'll check it out and Alexa like, so what's your stance? Yeah, I mean the reason I ask this question is, is, is it's it's a big challenge we have and I have uh, and you know doing the right thing and doing the right thing the, the first thing you do is the right one rather than the other one because there are lots of things to be done everybody wants everything Everybody wants everything probably yesterday as well and and the the, the capacity is limited and but also if you want to you know as a as a technology team enjoy your work and, and do your best in creativity and in engineering practices you have to kind of give yourself kind of a time not not chasing tails all the time which is which is you know uh, uh why this this is this is very important i mean i think a good point on paul i mean i i, I kind of uh, i haven't read the book but i i do kind of agree with that sentiment it, it's one of those things if, if, if you know if you have a problem in one thing once i don't want to have the same problem again so so you know. Fix it and then improve everything. Basically, so having more time later for things. And I think what you said, Chris, communication, that is the key. Um, and I think it is, uh, you know, in our world as well, it's it's you know balancing and what we think as as technologists. Obviously, we think we know the best because we we know tech uh, and and our founders who have their own visions and passions and so they think what they what they want. But also the customers who everybody seem to forget sometimes. So I think that's, that's for me what, you know, always putting yourself in the shoes of who is going to use this. The customers in kind a of broad sense can be internal one. But who is going to use this? This is this is why you're doing this. This is who you're doing this for. And then try to prioritize that way. Although it, it doesn't make it less challenging. There's always more things to be done. I'm not sure if that's your experience, but it's just for me, it is like that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's one of them, it's one of
1: the things that it? it's like, you, you never, no no system ever gets complete, does it? I mean, it's like, if you're, um, I don't know, if, you, if you're a brickie and you're building a house, there's a point at which you lay the last brick, and then the house is built, and then you walk away from it. You never do that with, a, with a, um, an IT system of any description, it's like, there's always stuff you can add to it, and I suppose it's... case of you've just got to make a decision when when it's done enough
0: completely agree yeah thanks Paul. before we end the podcast i'd like to say thanks so much to all our guests today for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation once again our guests today have been paul michaels music magpie chris diver scan computers and alexa bukatic of the startup factory If you are hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, you can drop me a message too. I'm Scott Hutchinson, and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at scott.hutchinson at evolutionjobs.co.uk. Thanks again to all our guests, and thanks for listening. See you next time.